You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everyone, and thanks so much for being with me for another week of Women to Watch. My name is Sue Rocco, and it's great to be back for our second week of our brand new two-hour show. Um, In addition to my one-on-one interviews with all of my guests each week, you'll also hear from our exclusive watch team of on-air contributors, um, as well as a new segment with some of our past guests, which we're calling Where Are They Now? Um, We're very excited about checking in with some of the women who've been on the show to see um, what they've been up to and bring us any updates. It should be fun to catch up with them. With me this evening is Lisa Broderick, and Lisa is the founder and current executive director of Police to Peace, which is an organization that develops uh, research-driven programs, creating positive change and engagement between the police and communities that they serve. And while this is, you know, very much a relevant and timely topic and issue, this is something Lisa thought about and did um, some years ago, back in 2016. She has a really very inspirational story, and I'm very honored to have her with me tonight. If you're interested in learning more about the show or our watch team, be sure to visit us at womentowatch.net. And that's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And be sure to sign up for our newsletter and our podcast so you never miss miss a show. So now I'm very happy and excited to welcome to the show Lisa Broderick. Lisa, thanks so much for joining me. Sue, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, Just so our listeners know, you're calling in from Arizona, a beautiful, beautiful part of the country. And while we're all kind of tied to our homes, I would imagine it's a it's a very nice place to be. 
in spite of the pandemic? If you needed to be locked down in the pandemic, it was a good place to end up. I flew out of New York just before the country shut down and okay. have been here ever since. Wow. Yeah, good timing. And and probably some nice places to be outside of the house, just walking around and close to nature. Oh, it's beautiful. And the, the what leaves there are, we're in very northern Arizona, are beginning to turn and the weather is cool. It'll be a lovely fall. Very nice. Well, I, Lisa, in, you know, speaking to you um, a few months ago and, and reading about your life story, there's so many things that I truly find inspirational. And as I often do, uh, I want to start with your upbringing um, in Arizona. I understand you were uh, born and raised in Arizona, and you described it to me as being somewhat of a latchkey kid. Um But one of the stories that I think in in kind of trying to determine what was the most impactful experience in your life is when you were four years old. Um, And I understand you had a very near-death experience as a result of a fall. Can you tell us about what happened? Yes, and as a matter of fact, it's very near where I live now, which is a coincidence of sorts. And that is my my father was one of the first computer science trained engineers in the country back in the 50s. And he was in Arizona and uh, had, had been sent there because New Yorkers in the 50s who had asthma sent their children to live in Phoenix, of all things. So my father was raised in Phoenix at a boarding school. When he went back to New York and married my mother, he moved back to Arizona, which had a budgeting, a burgeoning computer industry. And here he uh, he founded a computer company. He was entrepreneurial himself. But we used to summer and travel to northern Arizona, which is Sedona and the Grand Canyon. And there one summer when I was around the age of four or five, we had a cabin in the mountains. And my sister and I, being little girls, she's a year younger than I, were jumping on the bed in a pretty remote cabin. And the bed rolled away and I went through a plate glass window and was impaled on the window. I know it was very, at at the time for our family and later on, we never really spoke about it. I obviously did live, although the experience, the near-death experience made quite an impact on me. And I must say, I've done research ever since, and it it changes people. My perspective of the way things work in the world and, you know, the unseen world and what's possible really changed forever. I felt like I was given a second chance, even at the age of four, I had a new way of seeing the world, and it shaped me ever since. That's so interesting to me because age four um, can be a time where people's memories are foggy and vague and, and, you know, we don't remember much. And for some people, um, I think they have incredible memories and, and they can remember things as when they're toddlers. So because it was traumatic, um, was the change that that had for you something that happened immediately or was it as you were growing up that you began to have that different perspective on life? Well, it was an awakening of sorts, even at the age of four. And I must say that at that age, I was pretty uh, precocious and, and interested and curious, but I, I, I started to see everything as alive, animals and plants and things that a child wouldn't normally uh, ascribe qualities to. They were all very much alive to me. And as such, I became a more a greater part of the world rather than just in the world. And it uh, that that belief in life and that it's all around us and we, that we can change our circumstances has stuck with me ever since through grade school and on to college and then on into my career. 
Tell me about your teenage years, um, another pivotal time in your life, 16, was, 17, we were, and 18. Yeah. We moved from Arizona to uh, the new Silicon Valley, which was just around in the mid-70s, had begun. And my father was a computer science engineer, as I mentioned, and ended up at Intel and then at Apple Computer as a startup. And so we were, and then my mother pivoted in her career from an economist to join the computer industry as well which was quite young at that time, imagine, right? Apple was a startup and Microsoft and all of that. And so we, my parents worked very hard and my father traveled the world you know, for Apple. And we were quite alone, quite on our own. So my brother and sister and I uh, became uh, young people who could care for ourselves a lot. You know, and parents, although they were part of the equation, um, we, we had a self-dependence and an interdependence at a family which I have since discovered is pretty rare. And then also later on, the, the closeness of our family, and both my parents have died ever since, has, uh, has kept us close as a family and, and helped us see the world in a way that we could become anything that we desired. There were really limitless possibilities. If all of this was true and we could survive and thrive, then we could make lives for ourselves and, and all of us are first responders in some way and then make lives uh, better for other people. So that's interesting, Lisa. Would you say that um, that independence that you have certainly developed came from the experience of, of often being on your own, or was there messaging from your mom and dad that told you that, that you could um, kind of achieve anything that you desired? Well, this is where it comes back to, you know, families and, and the value that families had. I had wonderful examples of what a successful life could become. Not a financially successful life necessarily, although there was that to some degree, but a successful life as a person, following dreams and and changing the world and making it better. Both my parents had great principles along those lines and good values. And I cannot help but believe that those values were transferred to us. I used to say to my mom at the end of her life, she died around two years ago, that we, we couldn't be who we were without her values having been imparted to us. Mm. And also there, I mean, when I think about your father and, and where you've ended up, you've certainly um, followed in his footsteps and probably had um, received some of your gifts and um, you know, acumen in, in technology from him. Would you say that's true? Absolutely. And looking at the small companies now, I actually laugh. We have the Googles and the Apples and the Microsoft. I mean, way back when, uh, Bill Gates had bad hair. And Steve walked into <laughs> my office one day and asked, who are you? And I responded, I'm Lisa, who are you? And so, you know, those <laughs> were the days. Those were different days before all of this has happened. And amazing, my father would be amazed at the world today. When a personal computer was a was a called an Altair, which was named after a Star Trek planet. I mean, honestly, we were so innocent back then. And then it's evolved, but it really led me to believe that people can make profound changes in their lives and that other people can help them. And together, we can really change the world. I can't express how much that notion has really shaped me in my later years. Well, I, I wanted to share with the listeners, you um, actually put yourself through Stanford. Um, you uh, received a degree in economics and an MBA in global finance from Duke. How difficult was that to do that really on your own? Well, when you look back, you think to yourself, you know, I actually say this to myself, but for the grace of grace, there stumble I. 
you know, I'm stumbling forward with the universe sort of supporting my dreams. It didn't seem like a, a huge gargantuan effort at the time, but when I look back, I wonder how it all happened. It was the result of a very unfortunate divorce between my parents. My father traveled a tremendous amount, and my parents were divorced right around the time that we were in mid to late high school. My brother was older and my sister was younger. And so there really wasn't money to send, uh, send us to college, and we all put ourselves through college. And I decided that I would apply to Stanford and I would go there. And uh, amazingly, that happened. Well, I w yes, determination, right? I mean, that's... <laughs> well, or blind, blind, you know, a sort of in a, a blind innocence, which suggested that it would be okay. So when I, I enrolled and I, I went there and I, the first quarter, at the end of the first quarter, I uh, presented myself to the financial aid office and said, you know, I'm, I'm basically uh, independent. I'm on my own. And they said, okay. And I got every scholarship that I could possibly get. I worked two jobs. I, um, you know, I kept my grades up because you needed to do that. And it just seemed normal to me. I'm sure that things could have gone very differently had I had different role models mm -hmm. or a different early life experience. Right. But for me, it, it worked out and I'm very grateful for that. I'm speaking with Lisa Broderick this evening, the founder and executive director of Police to Peace. Um, before you founded Police to Peace, you, you worked in technology, as you mentioned, and, and you got your start at Apple. How did you get that job? Well, my dad was very high up in sales, so I had the last name that, uh, that pulled strings when Apple had a very, very few number of people. Let's put it that way. I was in the marketing department. I was very young. I was at Stanford. I was 18 and, um, uh, and worked with the marketing team there and then went on and founded many, many startups and helped many young companies grow and achieve their dreams. We're going to go into our first break. Uh, I'm speaking with Lisa Broderick this evening. Stay with us for our watch team. We'll be right back. Now, the women to watch Health Watch. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Today on Your Radio Doctor, we had a fascinating guest, Dr. Alex Pentaliat, an accomplished violinist, a neurologist, and the co director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Music and Medicine. He explained that singing, playing an instrument, or just listening to music can activate more areas of the brain at the same time than almost any other human activity, up to 50 different areas. For example, listening to a pleasant song will activate some of the same areas that are activated by drugs of abuse, cocaine and alcohol. Those areas can be activated just as strongly by music. Music can activate many other areas involved in paying attention, speech production, areas that produce movement and process sound that help us pay attention and remember. Autobiographical memory is linked strongly to listening to music. Children who take music lessons can actually be protected from some aspects of hearing loss later in life. As little as two years of lessons showed measurable changes in the brain associated with better attention skills than their peers who didn't have lessons. Music may also increase attention, improve performance in math and science, and the ability to learn their primary and even a secondary language. A certain Mozart piano piece is associated with reducing epilepsy in children. Patients with Parkinson's who sing in a choir can improve voice loudness and their ability to communicate, along with better mood and decreased anxiety. Mood is also improved in Alzheimer patients. Rhythm gives order to music and our own inner timing orders our natural body movements and language. Rhythm-based therapies show promise in development in patients with autism spectrum disorder. 
Rhythm entertainment or rhythmic stimulations like marching to the beat of a metronome improve aspects of walking and balance in patients with Parkinson's, stroke, multiple sclerosis, and lower the risk of falling. The future is bright. Last year, the National Institutes of Health funded $20 million to study the impact of music on the brain and the entire body and how it can be harnessed to benefit humanity. Look for my article in phillyvoice.com called Music and Medicine or the podcast on yourradiodoctor.com. If you believe that family, charity, or money is deeply important for the greater good, Fortis Wealth invites you to a highly personalized financial discovery process to help you visualize your financial legacy. It's not for everyone, but if you're willing to invest the time and thought, they can offer advice and strategies to help you accomplish your dreams. Fortis Advisors is a wholly owned subsidiary of Fortis Wealth, an investment advisor registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Visit Fortis-Wealth.com today because tomorrow is waiting. Now the women to watch. Finance Watch. Good evening. This is Terry. And this is Maggie. And we're from Fortis Wealth. As part of our risk management review at Fortis, we help our clients evaluate their property and casualty insurance. These policies help protect the stuff you own and provide liability coverage to help protect you and your assets if you're found legally responsible for an accident that causes injuries to another person or damage to another person's belongings. Here are some items that we discuss. Is your homeowner's insurance adequate? Insurance industry data reveals that approximately 64% of homeowners are underinsured. The cost of reconstruction can be up to 30% more than it is to build a new house. Having an inventory of your personal possessions can be worth the time, especially if you file a claim. Your jewelry, silverware, and collectibles should be appraised every three to five years to keep pace with rising costs. Consider full torque coverage to better protect your family when injured in an auto accident. Our PNC specialist also recommends that your health and life insurance be coordinated with your auto policy medical benefits. If you have substantial assets and or earnings, consider an umbrella or excess liability policy to protect current and future assets in case of a lawsuit. Don't underestimate your potential liability. The more you have, the more attractive you are as a target. Multi-million dollar judgments have become increasingly common. And don't forget about FIDO. According to the Insurance Information Institute, dog bite claims account for more than one-third of all homeowners' insurance liability claims. You may need other specialized coverage if you own boats and other sports vehicles, if you're a landlord, or if you serve on a volunteer board. And consider these other risk factors. You have children who drive, you have a swimming pool, you employ a housekeeper, you entertain at your home, you or your family members blog, tweet, and or post comments or photos online. As always, consult with a trusted advisor with expertise in the fine print of these policies. Know what your risks are and how much you are exposed. Price is not the only consideration. This is Terry. And this is Maggie. Peace out. This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Lisa Broderick, the founder and executive director of Police to Peace, um, which, by the way, is an incredible organization that has developed programs, um, I'll say training, perhaps, that really are working wonders to bridge the the gap between the police and the communities they serve, um, which is so incredibly timely. Again, when when I think about the work that you're doing, Lisa, I, I wonder if, you know, 
when things started to really kind of come to the forefront um, in, in the news and people became more aware of some of the issues that were going on, how did you feel about the fact that you started this organization and, and here it is at this time in history? Well, that is a, that's a wonderful question and an interesting story because it actually goes to my early life. And that is with anything possible, it just seemed like the obvious thing to do. And this, there has always been this type of violence in the country. I mean, let's be honest. With that said, most recently, we really have a reckoning on uh, race in this country, on the role of the police and how communities feel they're being policed. That wasn't so true back in 2016 when I had this idea that if you put police and peace in the same word and you put the number two in the middle, that it could actually make a difference. And, and the idea came to you, um, it was really somewhat of a vision while, while you were on the beach. Tell us that story. It was, and actually I've shared this with police chiefs and sheriffs and it's been okay with them. You know, you wanna make sure you're not too out there. But um, <laughs> I, I was uh, in my later career, I was a high technology CEO for small companies and I was working with a company in Jacksonville, Florida. And Jacksonville, Florida is a very uh, diverse community. Having been a Californian and a New Yorker, I loved that aspect of it. I would walk on the beaches in the afternoons and just be with people. And it was a late summer afternoon in June of 2016 and a police vehicle entered the beach. And as I looked at the police vehicle, I was about to leave. I had a momentary vision, I can only say that, where the word police, I saw instead the word peace officer on this vehicle. Now, I may have seen this at another time, or, you know, certainly it's around as a word, but I had never seen it on a vehicle before. So I went back home and thought about that. I called a dear friend of mine who's a constitutional attorney, lawyer who knew about these kinds of things, and his words were, that's what they're all called. I don't know why they all don't do that. And honestly, Sue, in a moment, my life changed forever. Because wow. when we're faced with these opportunities, we can say to ourselves, if not me, who? If not now, when? And I knew that it was mine to do, even though I did not have a role in policing. My, as I mentioned, my family of first responders, ER doctors, ambulance drivers, EMTs, firemen. My sister was a trial attorney, you know, defending uh, people who were very harmed. With that said, I hadn't had much interaction with the police, except when I was about 16 once. <laughs> and we all, we've all had those, and it straightened me out. But I realized that I had, a, I had something to do, that I could serve with my background and my, my knowledge of how disruptive technologies can, can change the conversation using radical thinking and change an entire industry. And that's exactly what I've set out to do. Um, Lisa, you've been described as being at the forefront of applying disruptive technologies to societal problems. And I wonder if you can kind of describe um, more clearly what that is and what that means. Well, early on at Apple, my introduction to personal computers, no one knew that they would revolutionize the world. And you'd be holding, as my mom once said, she held up an iPhone and she said, I once sold the equivalent of this for $5 million meaning the computer components that are in your iPhone used to cost $5 million in the 70s and 80s. That's really amazing. And that was for big computer companies. But the world has been revolutionized. The, I, the personal computer is certainly a disruptive technology. And later on with that as an example, I worked with companies who did digital signatures, which were legal on tax returns, which broadcast live radio to aircraft while in flight before any of this happened 
which, uh, which took programs and made them into apps for new things, which was uh, one company was the very first travel agent on the internet before, before it was called the internet. It was, and before there was anything called Google or a browser. All of these things have really been part of what's changed the world and changed the dialogue really for the better if we harness these technologies. Of course, it's what you do with them that makes them valuable, but they have shaped the world in ways that we could not have imagined. You know, in addition to your work with the organization that you founded, you're, you're also um, a coach, a life coach, a business coach. You're working with people all the time um, to help them. And one of the things, you know, you discovered in your own life's journey is the, the true power of communication and its ability to impact society and also change people's behavior. How have you applied that, um, that knowledge to the work that you do with the police? Well, part of the dialogue here in the country today and really in the world is words matter. With social media, words have become different. There's a new word called truthy, which is not really true, but it sounds true. And so um, the words that we speak actually not only include our intentions, they're heard by others and they change people as they hear them. So simply introducing the word peace into policing, which by the way, when you think about it, what is the one fundamental notion that ties all cops together? Friends of mine are police chiefs call themselves cops, which I think is funny. What ties all cops I, together? Know, I, it's hear the word, I, I hear that. I hear that a lot. And like, I think when I was growing up, it was not the proper term to use. And now it is. They like, they like yeah. to be called that. They call themselves that. Yeah. And so the, the notion of peace officer in the penal code most states refer to their law enforcement officers as peace officers, not as police officers. So they take an oath. In California, they take an oath to be a peace officer, not a police officer. It's not even mentioned. Many states are like that because of how the country was formed and policing rolled out across the country from the, from the uh, east to the west. So with that one introduction, the reintroduction of the word, it's so funny that the disruptive technology for policing is the word peace mm -hmm. and peace officer, which is their name anyway. But when we introduce that into a community, and we've done numerous studies where we introduce peace officer into a community, the community changes. It sees the officers differently, the officers see themselves differently, and the officers see the citizens differently and their roles differently. In one wonderful example, an officer said, I used to think of myself as going out and enforcing the law. Now my job is to keep the peace. And honestly, Sue, that's what we want. That's what we need yeah. in this country. We need yes. to pivot towards peace. Well, one of the things that's often discussed around this topic is the fact that there's things that the police are called to do that perhaps they should not be, that they're not necessarily qualified for. And I read an interesting article about a, a program that's going to allow people who handle um, social work issues, mental health, to be riding along with the police officers so that if a situation does not necessarily require um, a, a police force and it's not a violent issue or someone's not in danger, that the right people are there. What do, you, what do you think about that? And do you know anything about it? Yes, I do, actually. And it's a movement in policing whose time has come. 
When I ask the officers that I deal with, sheriffs and police chiefs and police officers and constables and marshals, if they want to respond to a mental health crisis, not one of them ever says yes. But the reason they do is, number one, we're trained as a population to call them. Number two, their response system is the fastest of any. The police will get there the fastest. Mm. Number three, we have taken money away from mental health programs so that people are not getting the care they need. And so what remains are police officers in the middle in a situation for which they're not trained, in situations which can be difficult and which need to be handled by a professional. So programs are rolling out across the country. Many of them are based on a program called CAHOOTS in Eugene, Oregon, which has had a ride-along program of mental health professionals with the police for years with tremendous success. And in my opinion, all departments should look to do that. I wonder, is, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, is the danger to that person um, who's not trained or equipped, you know, as a police officer is, are there any statistics around that? You know, has there ever been a situation where it, it, it is too dangerous for that person? Well, it's a ride along. So uh, they're not sending someone into a situation which would be dangerous, and I'm sure it's assessed ahead of time. Obviously, I don't know. But no, I have not heard of, of uh, problems or situations with the Eugene program, which has been so successful for so many years. Lisa, one of the things that I'm so impressed by in, when I look at your career is, is that at the age of 46, you decided to become a life coach and a business coach. Why is it important to you to share what you've learned with others? When you think about it, I actually heard a quote after that, but I started to change in my priorities and it was captured by something the Dalai Lama was, uh, was supposed to have said. I actually looked up the quote and couldn't find it exactly. And that is women over the age of 50 will change the world. And his reason for this was women who uh, may be educated, who have raised families and who are caregivers by nature and also by many of the things they did in raising their families may have had families which are grown in a way and they turn their attention back to society. They want to help others. And that, ha that happened for me in a very profound way right around that time and has been the case ever since. If you're just tuning into the show this evening, I'm speaking with Lisa Broderick. And Lisa Broderick is the founder and executive director of Police to Peace, um, an organization that develops research-driven programs creating positive change and engagement between the police and communities that they serve. Um, Lisa, in your approach working with business owners and, and individuals, it's unique in that you integrate science with spirituality. How do you do that? Well, I think that came out of the early experience, the death experience, where I, uh, I realized for myself, and others may disagree, that there's more to what's going on here than meets the eye. There's a, there's a subtext, there's an ability to change our circumstance. After all, the placebo effect has been used for 100 years in medicine. And why is that? Because if people believe they're going to get well, they actually do get well, oftentimes. Mm -hmm. That's why they give people placebos, so that they can check against a valid drug. And so if we, if we could apply that, that type of uh, approach to life, that we can change our circumstances, our words matter, and how we approach life and how we think matters, then people will really be helped. And I decided to use that approach to help others. And do you think, is that spirituality or is that perspective? 
and perhaps a bit of both? Well, so spirituality is really where science and religion meets, right? I would say that I'm a very, my faith in uh, a higher um, uh, source, we'll call it, is very strong. Would I ascribe it to a religion? No, I've studied many religions from Buddhism and Hinduism and Judaism and Catholicism and Christianity and Islam and all different faiths to try to find answers and learn more. And in applying that, I, I came up with, I really think that it is spirituality. It's a sense of spirit and oneness and connectedness that if we look really closely, I think all of us can feel. Absolutely. Um, stay with us. We're going to go into our second break. I'm speaking with Lisa Broderick, the founder and executive director of Police to Peace. We'll be right back. Now, the women to watch, Military Watch. Hi. I'm Carol Eggert, Senior Vice President of Military Affairs at Comcast NBC Universal. According to the U.S. Center for Military History, the United States Army is not entirely a reflection of American society. It has discriminated over the years against a variety of American citizens that it has deemed unfit for service. Understandably, those who are medically, morally, or mentally insufficient were and are prohibited from service. However, the Army, guided by Congress and responding to various societal norms, has over time either prohibited or severely limited service by a wide variety of social and ethnic groups. Think African Americans, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, and women have at various times been banned from service, allowed only in small numbers, or only under special conditions. Yet, in its centuries of existence, it can be said that gradually the Army has been more and more accommodating to a wider variety of divergent elements of society, and it has become more reflective of the society it serves. As a person who has served over 34 years, I have witnessed much of the military's diversity journey, and I am proud of the progress that has been made. Much of the change is because of regulation, policy, and cultural awareness programs. I certainly have broadened my understanding of the multicultural groups that make up the beautiful tapestry of America, which in turn has made the Army a more effective and stronger organization. Thinking of these special observances, I would like to share with you that October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month. This awareness event is observed so that Americans may reaffirm commitment to ensuring equal opportunity for all citizens and so that they may pay tribute to the accomplishments of men and women with disabilities who contributed, continue to contribute, and wish to contribute to making the nation's economy strong. You may remember Senator Daniel Anue, who was born and raised in Hawaii. Well, in 1942, he enlisted in the U.S. Army's 442nd Regimental Combat Team, which was made up of soldiers of Japanese ancestry. After losing his right arm in battle in 1945, he was honorably discharged in 1947, earning a Medal of Honor and a Purple Heart, among other awards. He became Hawaii's first congressman when it became a state in 1959, and later he was elected to the U.S. Senate, where he served for almost 50 years. Now just think what talent this nation would have lost had it allowed disability to hold a person back. And this is a perfect example of why we should not set limits on unlimited potential. Now the women to watch, Nonprofit Watch. 
Good evening, Women to Watch listeners. I'm Dr. Owens, Managing Director of Financial Empowerment at United Way of Greater Philadelphia in Southern New Jersey. As you know, October 15th wrapped up another tax year for most of us. However, if you were not in the group of individuals and families or small businesses, do not fear. United Way's Tax Assistance Initiative, known as VITA, the Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program, and its partner, Campaign for Working Families, can still provide you the guidance and support you need. Now, each year, United Way's partner, Campaign for Working Families, files over 30,000 federal returns and 20,000 state returns. This tax assistance is a free service made possible by generous donors. So before you come upon another tax season, make sure you get a handle on this past tax year. And if you have an outstanding tax challenge or situation from a previous year, Campaign for Working Family can assist you and can file three years of prior returns. This is a free service as well. Additionally, Pennsylvania has over 300,000 individuals, mostly non-tax filers, who have not claimed their economic stimulus payment, leaving $300 million on the table. United Way's tax partner can assist you and has a virtual and drop-off option available for you. So once again, this is a free service known as VITA and has one of the best tax filing records in the country. So please go to unitedforimpact.org or cwfphilly.org for more information and to get the assistance you need. And until next time, I'm Dr. Owens, your nonprofit watch. Now more of Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Hi, Sue Rocco here with an update from one of our past guests, Charlene Doka Bauer, speaker, author, and founder of Internet Sense First, shared her story with us back in February of 2019. Let's see what she's been up to since then. Hi, Charlene. Hi, Sue. It's nice to have, it's nice to be back. It's great to have you. Tell us what you've been doing since you were last on the show. Well, since I was last on the show, I've, I've got a second release, a new book that I've called The Internet, Our Children in Charge. And it's all about my theory of digital supervision, which is a proactive way to protect children online. Their vulnerabilities are unbelievable, particularly because of COVID. And it's important that people learn about digital supervision. I've also founded a new speaking team called the ACIT Council, the Anti-Internet Child Exploitation Team. They are expert speakers from Canada, the United States, and Spain that speak about digital supervision, but from their own expertise. We have a police officer that worked in an internet child exploitation unit, uh, specialists on internet gaming, exposure of pornography to children, and it's all based on my theory of digital supervision. All philanthropic speakers, we ask that Our expenses be paid, but a donation be made to a charity that is doing similar work to my charity in Canada called Internet Sense First. It's been very exciting, and I'm very pleased to have 12 speakers that I have collected in my travels as a global speaker, handpicked them because of their expertise, 
and their compassionate way of speaking, which is necessary when talking about this type of topic, which is internet child exploitation. It's wonderful to hear, Charlene, that you're still doing the great work and getting the support you need as well. Thanks so much for um, checking in and, and letting us know what you've been up to. Well, thank you for having me. This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program is pre-recorded. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, here's the owner, founder, and host of Women to Watch, Sue Rocco. Thanks for being with us this evening. If you missed the first hour, I'm having a wonderful conversation with Lisa Broderick, the founder and executive director of Police to Peace, which again is a, an organization developing research-driven programs, creating wonderful positive change and engage, engagement excuse me, between police and their communities. Um, it's, it's something that I think is certainly a very hot topic today, and, and a lot of people are weighing in. Lisa, one of the questions I wanted to ask you about this is, have you received any pushback from people who think that the work that you're doing maybe won't make a difference or won't work? Well, when you think about uh, a, a profession or an industry such as police services, as I call them, by the way, I've stopped calling them law enforcement because I think as a country we need to move on to uh, to a, a more expansive way of thinking about our policing, which is would be police services, which is what other countries call them. So policing in this country, which is sheriffs and police departments and all of that, they're as a group, as an industry, they're not monolithic. But it is pretty, pretty homogeneous across the country and across, uh, across the world what the police do. And so uh, these types of leaders rarely take risks on new things. The good news is being a peace officer is not a new thing, which is why I'm so lucky that that came to me as an idea. It's an old thing, right? Everything old is new again. So when these uh, departments, when they think about something they could do to engage their community, they have historically pushed back on this type of effort. That is no longer the case. I would say with the events of this summer that we are able to speak openly about our desire for change in how our communities are being policed and how the departments want to be seen in their communities. I can't tell you how many calls I've had with departments whose, in a sense, their heart is broken because they are being you know, just piled in with other things that happen around the country that have nothing to do with them. I had a sheriff tell me, We've never, we don't kill anybody. And he was surprised at that. With that said, with social media and everything else, there are, there are terrible things that happen and terrible incidents, but they don't happen for all departments. So if we had pushback, yes, is our answer, this isn't new, <laughs> this right. is your real name. Mm -hmm. And by the way, we can help you improve engagement in your community. 
Yes, you know, with it's such a shame because with social media comes this constant barrage of misinformation, right? And when I think about the issues and the news around the police today, it seems to me that the same thing happens when you talk about any group of people in the country. So there's this broad brush that's painted um, that if one event happens, anyone who belongs to that group is that type of person. How can we, you know, maybe with your role in, in being so closely tied to a group of people that this happens to, what do you think is something that could be actionable that we could do um, to move away from that, grouping everyone and, and saying that everyone is the same, dependent on the action of one? Well, it takes discernment. And I've thought a lot about this. Conflation is an interesting word. Conflation is making two things the same that are not the same because the because someone doesn't discern the difference. And so we see the police as monolithic. There are 800,000 officers in the country and 18,000 departments. And trust me, they are not all the same. In fact, they are all different, serving their communities differently with different personalities. There is a similar culture among them because they protect and serve, and that goes with their training. I think as a public, discernment in everything we do, discerning the news we consume, discerning the fact that not all of one type of group are all of this behave in the same way or are the same way. It takes a little more work on our part, but as a country, we've had bigger challenges. And so overcoming the, the knee-jerk reaction to paint everyone with the same brush and see people as individuals, and especially our own departments as individuals. Generally speaking, people love their police departments in their communities. Recently, events have been difficult and awful things have happened, of course. But for so many small towns, most police departments are very, very small with 30 officers or fewer. And the communities love their police departments. We know that because we survey them and we ask them those questions. Mm -hmm. So again, I think it'll take a little more work on our part <clears throat> as citizens to apply discernment. Yeah. Lisa, tell us, let's talk about the specifics of what what you do every day and what your team does. Um, you mentioned surveys. That's obviously, you know, uh, the research behind getting feedback from the police officers themselves. But what exactly is the program and, and what do you do? Police to Peace started out as a simple initiative, and that was to introduce the word peace officer into communities uh, and the police department police and sheriffs as well, and constables and marshals, all of municipal policing. And the first thing we did is we applied them to vehicles. So we put peace officer decals on fleets of vehicles. The first police department in Redlands, California, and the first sheriff's department, Richland County, South Carolina. And then we gauged the community uh, awareness and uh, feelings about the change before, during, and after, and we gauged the officers as well. And the, since then, we've done many, many departments with different types of surveys and different types of interventions, we'll call them, where we gauge community sentiment and then we introduce something, which is a change, and then we gauge the difference in order to find out how the public and the officers change as a result. And in every instance, words matter. What people say to one another, how they behave and how they treat one another affects the entire culture of the department and the communities for the better if the words are peaceful. That's what we're learning. And that is something we can do across the country and we intend to do it across the country. So if I were to ask you, Lisa, what your vision is in, in the work that you're doing, reshaping 
the police? How would you answer that? There's a simple example which was given to me by a police chief who is so knowledgeable this. His name is Jim Bureman, and he's the past president of the National Police Foundation in Washington, D.C. And he said to me, you know, in Los Angeles, if Eric Garcetti said to the police chief, Michael Moore, he said, police chief Moore, I want you to think of yourself as peace officers, and I want the department to think of themselves as peace officers. You don't have to put it on uniforms, which we've done, or your cars, which we've also done. We just want you to think of yourselves that way. And if police chief Michael Moore embraced that, he would say to himself, hmm, what does a peace officer department look like? What does a peace officer chief look like? What does a peace officer lieutenant and officer look like? How do we hire peace officers? How do we train them? How do we reward them? How do we advance them? All of these things, if that thought were in a department, would fundamentally change them forever because the answers are different from law enforcement. They are different in how they view the community and how they manage all of the procedural things that happened within a department would be fundamentally different by embracing one simple notion without even including it anywhere on vehicles. That can be done in every department in this country. And if that were true, we would be in a different place. It'll take time to get there. This is aspirational. I have dreams, but we want to get to a place where departments aspire to never have to shoot anyone ever again and to aspire to peace for themselves and their communities. And I know we can get there. How many states are you um, currently working in? Well, I would have to think about that. Um, 10. I would okay. say. Yeah, significant. A significant number. States. Yeah. Well, again, there are, there are 18,000 departments. This is, a, this is a heady problem, right? This is, mm -hmm. this is not something that, that goes away overnight because many of the things we think of as laws or things that have been challenging and terrible in terms of incidents are not laws. And so the use of chokeholds, use of force, restrict shooting and moving vehicles, these are not laws. These are individual policies of departments. And they're set by the police chief or the sheriff, generally speaking. And so when that's true, you have 18,000 different departments with 18,000 sets of policies, all trying to do their best, in my opinion, to serve their communities. Right. But to really make a change, we need to impress on them as much as possible, the, the policies that, that supports how the community wants to be policed and how the police can police the community in order to keep everyone safe. You know, my hope is that the, the officers going through this program and being introduced to this different kind of mindset and perspective and, and the way they look at themselves will also be a great um, addition to your work. In other words, they're all going to be communicating with each other and saying, you know, talking about the the positive changes that are occurring because of it and, and sharing that with other police from other states and, and towns. Oh, that's our number one way of spreading our message. We that's are we're like a restaurant. Someone can come in and get takeout and do any of our programs, and it's up to them because we would never impose ourselves. If they're interested in hearing about our programs, they'll find us because we're yeah. on the media. With that said, I will share an initiative with you. I won't tell you which state. There's a state in the United States where one of the police chiefs and uh, civic organizations are organizing the departments in the state to all become peace officers. Wow. 
And yeah. so when that initiative, I'll, I'll circle back with you when that uh, comes to pass, if that's mm-hmm. true. But that's how powerful this message can become. It took one department and they, they, their chief embraced it, their community embraced it. And now, in, as the word goes, it goes viral to the rest of the departments in the entire state. That's how we get to a tipping point of peace in this country. That's right. Uh, Lisa, listen, you, there's so many other things that you're doing in addition to your role as executive director of Police to Peace. And um, one of the things I read was um, you're involved with Mediators Beyond Borders International. Tell me about that uh, organization and, and what you do with them. Mediators Beyond Borders is a wonderful international organization which has spent its, which was founded in order to further mediation, really in foreign countries, but in the US, to mediate the most thorny of disputes. We're talking between countries and between warring factions. These are trained mediators, expert in every way. And an idea I cooked up with their US president was what if we introduce that idea into every police department? Now, many sophisticated police departments know about mediation, but what if there were a trained mediator in the community, from every community that was that was working with the local police department, wouldn't things change? And Mediators Beyond Borders is a wonderful organization to try to carry out that incredible initiative. That's terrific. Um, listen, we're going to go into our last break. When we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit about your work um, involvement with women in technology. Stay with us for our watch team, and we'll be back with Lisa Broderick. Now, the women to watch, Legal Watch. This is Nicole Hittner at Ballard Spar Law Firm for Legal Watch. What an incredible time for strong female leaders right now. Ballard was just named one of the top five law firms by Law 360's Glass Ceiling Report. The report measures female representation in equity partner ranks of law firms. Of firms with more than 600 attorneys, Ballard ranks fifth for percentage of partners that are women in the nation. I'm so fortunate to be among such great, talented women each day. I'm also working with incredible female CEOs and private equity principals that are making a real impact in the deal world, some of whom you'll hear from in the coming weeks. They're running multi-million dollar companies and creating impressive value by seeing the world with a different lens than their male predecessors. I'm excited about the gender diversity that's creating lasting financial impact for investors and employees of these companies. The decisions of these female leaders will drive the success of their businesses for years to come. Congratulations to all the women that are making a difference today. I'm so optimistic for our daughters and the opportunities they'll have because of the progress we're making now. This is Nicole Hittner from Ballard Spar, a glass ceiling report standout firm, bringing you your legal watch. Now, the women to watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manzo from Pathways Consulting Group. Even before COVID, excessive screen time and technology utilization had already increased dramatically for children. Now add digital learning into the mix. No one can say for sure how digital learning is affecting their education. The school systems are doing their best to organize digital learning, and for sure, it's been invaluable. But with this new way of learning come pros and cons. Let's talk about some of the pros. Technology is a necessary skill used in many professions, so the use of new technologies potentially can prepare students for their future. Technology learning platforms are being kept up to date, and having access to these platforms instantly through technology allow teachers to have access to current lessons and information. 
Through technology, students don't have to miss field trips. Field trips can come to them, whether in the home or in the classroom, and this allows students to go anywhere in the world or even into space. Education through technology allows students to continue to learn. Now for some cons. This particular con is the one that concerns me most, lack of social interaction face-to-face. No one really knows what the long-term overall effect all of this will have on our children. Social interaction is a big part of growing up. Next, having access to technology is not always plug and play. It requires teachers to learn new platforms, be able to troubleshoot, input data, and then train students. In many cases, schools are not equipped to provide the support teachers need, leaving teachers frustrated and on their own. If you're working from home and your children are logged into the virtual classroom, chances are you're all fighting for bandwidth on the internet. Whether you're a teacher or a parent, you're experiencing the pros and cons every day, and it's not easy. Creating more collaboration between teachers and parents will be imperative, and teaching children how to be good digital citizens will become a part of the curriculum. Tune in next week when I'll be discussing what it means to be a digital citizen. If you have information on this topic you'd like to share, email me at mary at pathwayscg.com. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. You're listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco on Talk Radio 1210 WP. Thanks for being with us this evening. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm speaking with Lisa Broderick, the founder and executive director of Police to Peace. And uh, Lisa's career and life story is is fascinating on so many levels. I think starting the show, Lisa, with um, an experience you had as a little girl and the work that you're doing today is is really interesting. Um, one of the things I think, you know, as far as our show, we talk often about the importance of bringing women into positions of leadership across all industries and yours being technology. There's a wonderful organization, Women in Technology. And love for you to talk about that for a few minutes, what you are seeing um, that's taking place that is that is positive change and what you hope to bring to that group. Well, it's so in so many ways, how we, how we experience life early on gives us ideas about what we can become. And although I wasn't formally mentored, I had a wonderful example in my mother, who was a professional woman. She went back and got her a PhD later in life. She raised a family and then continued to work. And by that example, I was able to set the course of my life. So when I had time later on as I approached 50, giving back to women so that they would have an example, so that they could learn from mistakes that I had made and not have to make them is so important. And not to exclude men, I mentor uh, many, many uh, entrepreneurs and people who are interested in changing and making profound changes in their lives. But it's so important to have an example of what's possible. That's why in our communities, when that example is missing, it's so devastating. When there's no one in a community who's gone to college, when there's no one in a community who has started their own business or or has risen above poverty, for instance, it's devastating for the young people because they may not see beyond. 
and a way to give back is an organization like Women in Technology and so many others. Um, I belong to other mentoring organizations as well, where we can provide our life experience and be an example to give messages of hope to young people who might otherwise turn away or not believe it was possible. So Lisa, can you share with me what in, in talking about that messages of hope, there's a lot going on today in the world and people are, are afraid, they are stressed. Um, there's so much uncertainty that everyone's mantra today is one day at a time, literally, because we never know what the news is going to be telling us as, as we wake up every day. What is your own personal mantra for dealing with that kind of anxiety? The one day at a time, I think, is the most powerful antidote to anxiety. I had a friend who was, uh, he was a, a physician and a spiritual teacher in New York City who taught imagery. His name was Gerald Epstein. And he would say to me, a true emergency can you describe a true emergency in your life? And I would say something trite and unimportant. And he would say, that's not an emergency. That's not happening now. An emergency is, for example, someone holding a gun to your head and it's loaded and they've pulled the trigger. That's an emergency. So if we can remain present in the moment for our lives and see that all of the things that we fabricate in our minds, all of the bad news stories and that we're digesting in the media are not happening right now, and return to the present moment, which by the way is the basis of Eastern thought of meditation, and I am a 30-year meditator, so that I return to that present moment, that presentness twice a day in my meditation. If we can do that throughout our day and remain present in our lives, then we can transcend fear. Fear does not need to grip us. With that said, Sue, we need to have hope as well, because when you transcend fear, then what? You need to have hope for a future and a dream. And a dream is not living in the future. It's a possibility that we create for ourselves that I really think, back to the power of words and thoughts, truly shapes our lives. If we can dream it, we can live it. You know, I'm curious, Lisa, in your work with men and women, is there, do you see a difference in the thought process um, that kind of stands out? Uh, among women and men that is so clearly different in their way of thinking? Well, I would say yes, although I sort of hesitate because, you know, you don't want to ascribe something to someone. Women are weavers. We're going to weave society together and we're going to reweave society back together now. And you can see that happening in many parts of the country. The women are weaving things. The men are more the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the initiative and the conquerors, let's say, going out and doing things that men like to do. And so women are weaving society and men are maybe blazing new trails. They both can be brought back to the present moment now and they both need dreams. And their dreams affect their lives and the lives of their families if they have them and if they can hold them and keep to them and use them to shape their lives. I love that expression. I've never heard that before. Women are weavers. You know, w women are peacemakers and collaborative and right community thought thinking. But that's such a beautiful way to describe women. It's interesting. We, you know, there's someone needs to weave society back together. And America is great at challenges. Right after World War II, we got on it. And so right. we are, we're facing big challenges now. We can come together and the women weave 
if, if and someone who would like to of course i know many women who are not weavers and i know many many men who are not conquerors if you want to or not initiative mm. so i don't want to generalize right With there's always said, exceptions yeah yeah the, the weavers and the trailblazers we'll call them are part of society weaving us back together and america as a country uh, uh picking ourselves up and dusting ourselves up and putting ourselves back together i think is something that is part of our it's part of who we are as a nation and we'll be doing that again. I'm speaking with Lisa Broderick this evening, the founder and executive director of Police to Peace. Lisa, um, I believe you have a book. Is that right? Well, I wouldn't be able to speak about that. I could speak about it generally speaking because okay. it's in, in publication. Okay. It's interesting. We talked about the present moment. The book is about time. Right. And um, I'm hoping that it's a definitive guide to how time works. So time works for you. Back to fear and back to dreams, if we can focus our thoughts and stay in the present moment, and if we can understand time, how malleable time is. A friend of mine said, you know, time isn't a thing. We make time a thing, but it's not a thing. Time is stretchable and bendable, and even Einstein knew that. Not even Einstein, he was a scientist, but he knew that time was relative. So if that's true, how can we apply that to our lives? Maybe on another show, if I come back one day, I can I can share with you the book as it's been published and a little bit more about that. Yeah, I, I you know what I'm fascinated by how you describe time because um, I think it's so true that you know we have created calendars and weeks and days and years and kind of structured everything to fit into um, a certain box, and and that's how we live when. In reality, you're so correct. It's it's such a very um, it's not a concrete thing that you can visualize, but that time is really just where you are, um, and and I think it's hard for people to to understand that concept because we've lived so structured around time. Yes. With that said, it's so interesting that the book was written during the pandemic where virtually everyone I speak to has had their time, their sense of time turned upside down. Correct. People yes. say you hear all the time. 2020 is, has, is five years long. Last <laughs> week was a month. Right. Yes. <laughs> Yesterday was a year ago. I don't even know what day it is anymore. Yeah. People's sense of time is completely upside down. And I believe it's for a lot of reasons. Change, uh, change gives us a sense of time. If nothing ever changes, there is no time. And actually, it's interesting. Clocks, I believe, were originally invented so that trains wouldn't run into one another, right? So when you think about yeah, it, it was so society right. could society could function a little more uh, a little more smoothly, but they weren't necessary for human existence. Time right. in human existence has been cyclical. It's been chaotic. With the Enlightenment, it, it became more uh, forward, you know, forward thinking. The the inevitable arrow of time from the past to the future. But our sense of time is very malleable. And if we can harness that and have time work for us, then we really can do just about anything. You know, wouldn't you say that the, that we are in an awakening of really everything that you spoke about? Um, when you're forced to be home and quiet and not running around, um, I think it's given a lot of people time to reflect and think, are we doing this right? <laughs> Is, you know, are we living life the right way? In my work with people, that is exactly the type of uh, counseling and work that I do. And that is, if your restaurant in New York City 
is not able to reopen, we're going to have to reimagine your life. If your saxophone retailer can no longer sell saxophones, and this is a true story, we're going to have to reimagine your life. Restaurant, let's make you a food a food cart in a market. Saxophone store, let's put you online. All of these things. If you never really wanted to do that business ever again, ever in the first place, let's have you do what you really want to do. It's a wonderful time to reset and to choose, as you've said, what's what really matters in life. And that is, at the end of the day, that's the most important thing anyone can do. You mentioned saxophones. I understand you're an amateur jazz musician. That's an embarrassing fact. Yes, I am. <laughs> no, fact, that's a wonderful a, fact. I played at jazz at Lincoln Center twice. I don't know wow. why that ever happened. Yeah, well, I was a New Yorker and there it was. And so <laughs> I, I returned. It was a funny story and it's about girls and boys. When I grew up in Phoenix in the 60s, very early, I wanted to play a musical instrument and they gave me an alto saxophone, that little saxophone for babies. And I said, I don't want to play this saxophone. I want to play the tenor saxophone because I was very <laughs> much a tomboy. And they said, the band leader said, you can't play the tenor saxophone. That's for boys. Oh, my and gosh. So, that would be so not later, PC today. <laughs> oh, 40 years later, I went out and got a tenor saxophone. I relearned it. But you know, Sue, I had a soul. I had awakened in my soul. I could feel music. I had felt great loss and pain and joy and tragedy, which you wouldn't as a child. And I could read music. So I pursued that for a while. I had a live band in New York City for a year. We made a couple of albums. Wow. And then on, wow. on New Year's Eve, a couple of years ago, just as we played Auld Lang Syne and the snow was falling in New York City, I played my last gig and basically hung up my saxophone. Okay, so that should not be an embarrassing story. That should be something that you scream from the rooftops and something that's a wonderful part, I think, of your life, you know, for anyone to, to you know, attempt that, follow their um, joy and love of music. And um, you've done that in so many different ways. I, I, I really think that your desire to um, continue to follow um, what that quiet voice is telling you to do is um, incredibly good advice uh, and, and a lesson for our listeners. Well, Sue, it really, I believe, harkens back to the early experience where having been through something, it was, tra I don't remember the, the, the death experience as tragic. I remember it as waking up, in a sense, to the possibilities, the limitless possibilities. And I had good examples in my parents who started companies and did all kinds of things. And I had the great fortune to attend a wonderful university, Stanford University, which is all about, you know, empowerment and becoming who we are. So that I was able to put all these things together for a life experience. But the most important thing to me today is to share it, to bring that back and to provide it to all others who would like to learn and become so that we can become better as society as a whole. Well, I can't think of any better cause uh, than peace. So um, I thank you so much, Lisa, for taking time out of your busy day to be with us this evening. And uh, we'll be sharing all of the, the work that you're doing for Police to Peace. Thank you, Sue. Thank you for having me. Now, the Women to Watch. Marketing Watch. Hi, everyone. I'm Lynn Falconio, Chief Marketing Officer of Publicis Health for Women to Watch Marketing Watch. The pandemic has challenged each of us in new, unexpected, and often personal ways. 
In my professional life, I've seen how the pandemic has impacted the larger marketing ecosystem. But in addition to my front row seat professionally, like everyone, COVID-19 has impacted my life beyond work. My husband has owned a restaurant in the heart of Midtown Manhattan for 25 years and from March to August was forced to shutter his doors for the very first time. According to a report from ABC News, the pandemic threatens to permanently close almost 85% of independent restaurants nationwide, putting 16 million jobs at risk. Though independent restaurants are hardest hit, large chains have had to make their pivots too in order to sustain some type of revenue during these times. For example, Chick-fil-A swiftly adapted to new consumer demand, offering new mobile and contactless options. This quick response helped them leap over Burger King and Wendy's to land in third place on the list of top 50 chains, according to Forbes. For better or for worse, the restaurant model and the way we consume food is changing radically. For large chains, loyalty programs as well as meal kits, delivery, and contactless drive through can make up some of the revenue, but for small businesses, the task is ever more daunting. The sharing of food is an expression of love, community, and friendship. And in our life under the curve world, we aren't eating together in the same ways as before, and a big part of that expression is lost. As we look toward the future, I encourage all of us to remember what it feels like when the local barista remembers how you like your coffee, that bartender who pours your drink just right, and the warmth you experience walking into your favorite neighborhood cafe. If we want our local restaurants to survive post-pandemic, let's commit to doing our part by shopping small and eating local. Until next time, I'm Lynn Falconio for Marketing Watch. Hi, Sue Rocco here, host of Women to Watch. Are you a fan of the show? If so, be sure to sign up for our podcast at womentowatch.net so you never miss a show and can listen on your own time. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. Now, Women on the Fly. Lisa, how do you start your day? I'm a meditator, and I start my day with a meditation beginning very early in the morning, around 3 a.m., and then uh, later on, I uh, am restful and think clearly about my day, and I envision my day in advance. Wow, 3 a.m., that's early. What is your mantra for stressful moments? Be here now. Are you a planner or a present moment worker? I've been told that I am uh, half woman, half man by people, half yin and half yang, half this and half that. And so I'm both a planner and I'm a present moment person. I'm both. Where, where are you typically when inspiration strikes? I could be anywhere, but I am in the now moment in my mind. A place you've traveled to that you'd like to go back? The Grand Canyon as a child. I can remember going down on a mule, which was very seemingly dangerous to someone so young, but it was so breathtaking, a wonder of the world that is unimaginable in scale and scope. I would like to go back. Wow. What is your definition of feminism? Being who we are in our uh, power and feelings about ourselves so that we express ourselves fully. What are three words that describe you? 
Iconoclast, Compassion, and Joy. Favorite color? Green for the heart. That's India. Mm. Favorite <sighs> book? Hmm. Well, I did just finish a book called Iconoclast, which is by Gregory Burns, and it's a neuroscientist. I'm very into science. And it talks about how to think differently, pretty much, Sue, everything we've been talking about. Who is someone who believes in you? Chief Jim Bjorman, who is, as I mentioned before, the past president of the National Police Foundation. Someone in his role to believe that peace officer could help this country on a national scale, in my opinion, took tremendous courage, given who he is. And he has believed in me for... Uh, since the beginning of this program. Last question, how do you end your day? I meditate. I do yoga in, in a Shivananda, which is a very accepted yoga practice. And then I meditate and then I go to dinner. I can sense the tranquility in you <laughs> in this rapid fire. Thanks so much, Lisa. Sue, thank you so much. Next is our Coach's Corner podcast, which is a shorter version of our weekly show and can be heard wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm BJ Gray with this week's Coach's Corner. Last year, I worked with a group of women lawyers about how to tap into their inner power so they could have more success building business at their law firm. Before you can truly tap into your inner power, you have to learn how to drop your inner critic, which is a habit many successful women have. Dropping something that is so ingrained can be hard, but when you're not reaching your goals, you really have to look at what is holding you back. And I gave these lawyers five questions to ask themselves about their beliefs, and I want to share them with you to help you create the change you seek. The first question is, is it working? Is your belief working for you? Often beliefs are about connection. And in this case, the women lawyers didn't feel they could compete because deals are done on the golf course and men had that advantage but that is just a belief that is holding them back. So then you got to ask yourself, is it helpful? If your beliefs are getting in the way of your work, then you need to decide if the belief is serving you. Beliefs are not permanent. And that brings me to the third question. Is the belief true? True in the sense that it's verifiable, testable, and predictive. Many times we are taught what to believe or somebody else decides what we should believe. And you never go back to challenge that belief and give yourself permission to change it, but you can. So do you need this belief to be true? Sometimes we do need the belief to be true so we can make it through the world. It acts as a placebo. The problem is though, when the belief prevents you from accomplishing your goals. And that brings me to the fifth question. What would change your mind? If you decide that your belief is actually true, then you owe it to yourself to be clear about what would have to happen for you to realize it's not true and be able to change it. All of this doesn't happen in your mind right away. The best way is to reflect on your beliefs and use these five questions as a guide to uncover your inner critic. Thanks for listening to this edition of Coach's Corner. Connect with me directly on LinkedIn or at bjgray.com. Until next time, I'm BJ from Coach's Corner. That is it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Let's continue to stay safe until we meet up again next week. Have a great week, everyone.
Thanks for listening to Women to Watch with Sue Rocco, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHD or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.